0: So I'm going to come down here, where I normally belong, so I'm a little more comfortable down here. I am privileged to be in front of you today, but I know what some of you may be thinking. Why is Darren up there? Where is Bill? And more importantly is Darren really qualified to be up there? (laughs) Well, I have something to say to those of you who are thinking that. Very good job. (laughs) It's a very good question. In fact, we've just read that John tells us to test what we're hearing, to question the messages around us, to make sure they are coming from the right place. So when I introduce myself, because I know some of you have started that question with, who is that up there, <laughs> why is he up there, and is he qualified to talk? So before I introduce myself, I've asked Wayne if he would pray for, well, for me specifically, but for all of us as we enter the word today. Heavenly Father, we just ask that your spirit would be upon Darren as he speaks this morning. Be upon our hearts. Open our minds and hearts to hear what you have to say today. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks, Wayne. So some of you may not know me at all or not very well. (laughs) Thanks, James. My wife and my son and I have been attending and actually members of this church from way back in the beginning of 2012. (laughs) And yes, a little bit further than that, 14 years we've been a part of this congregation and have enjoyed it very much. As for me personally, I have been attending church from before I can remember. So my faith walk has been a walk, a learning in progress from before I, I remember starting. I did publicly accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior at the age of 13 in in a ceremony that I will remember to this day and forever. I am currently your interim leader of men's ministry and, as many of you know, a member of your worship team. But most importantly today, I proclaim to you, unequivocally to you, that Jesus is the Christ and is born of God. This is the very test that John asks you to ask of me to make sure I am speaking from the right place. A little more about myself that you may not know because, and I do have a point here, because it it applies to my perspective today. Many of you may not know that during the week I am an insurance underwriter. Put succinctly, my job is to make business decisions on behalf of my employer by judging others. Yes, that's right. I spend my day judging people and judging their things. So, while some of you may also be judgmental, I am a highly trained professional. This clearly affects my perspective on things. What you may not know is that insurance has been around a lot longer than you may realize. Even in Old Testament times. I hope you forgive me for this. This cartoon has been sitting on my uh, wall in my office for about seven years now and I had to use it. So Frank says, uh, uh, Ernest says, how's business today? He says, well, it's tough. I sold disaster insurance to the city of Jericho, flood insurance to Noah, life insurance to Goliath, but I think things are now turning around. I just made a big annuity sale to a guy named Methuselah." <laughs> you see, what Frank needed here was a good underwriter. One behind him, helping him discern good business decisions. Like I said, I have a point here. As an underwriter, it is with some comfort that John gives us very clear guidelines for these tests, for discerning the messages around us and the people around us, even, to some degree. In first reviewing an insurance application, underwriters look at some of those simple tests. Let me give you a few examples. A life insurance underwriter will want to know application: Smoker, non-smoker. Then they know what to do from there. An auto insurance underwriter is going to look at your driving record. <coughs> no tickets? Uh-oh, there's a ticket. Ooh, where's the garbage? <laughs> a home insurance underwriter will look at, do you live in a brick house? Do you live in a frame house? Kara, you'll love this one. Do you live... In a house of straw. Oh, where's that garbage can again? So we have these tests, and we know where to go from there. So let's look at what John has us look at. Who is John talking about? What are these messages that John has us to be cognizant of? First of all, we have those that deny Jesus came in the flesh and also deny that god uh, that jesus even came from god. John is talking about the false teachers of the day. John uses very strong language, strong words, and he pulls no punches when he's talking about these messages. He calls them liars for turning god into a liar. He wants you to know that they speak from an entirely different perspective. And it's not a perspective that is healthy or good for us to pay attention to. It is a worldly perspective. Now, John was speaking specifically about one kind of false teacher. It was the Gnostics. Without going into the details of their philosophy on life, essentially, they twisted the word in order to fit... What was the world would have you do and enjoy? It isn't that different today, is it? Do you hear the challenge occasionally today? Well, if Jesus forgives us, I guess I can do whatever I want, right? That's twisting. That's turning God into a liar. And (laughs) Jesus into a fraud. These folks that speak from the world perspective will not listen to us. And in John's strongest language, he reminds us that they do not have the spirit from God, and they are from the Antichrist. Ooh, strong words. I'm not as liberal with the Antichrist label. I have a hard time going there. But keep in mind that while we may struggle with the strong language, what John is really getting at is the message itself, not necessarily the messenger. He's cautioning us, and we'll get into that more of that in a moment. Second of all, John is talking about those who have overcome. He's talking to his audience, mature Christians that he has known for years, In contrast to the false teachers, his audience, his readers now, acknowledge that Jesus Christ has indeed come in the flesh and is the Son of God. This is the foundation for everything we know to be true about Jesus his life, his teaching, his death, and his resurrection. Otherwise, Jesus is a fraud and cannot be taken seriously. So that's test number one. Test number two for us. We confess our sins and we obey his commands. Oh, is it really that simple? We have to be, do have to be careful here. But I will cite two specific scriptures. 3.10, anyone that does not do what is right is not a child of God. Oh. I don't do right occasionally. But then he says later, quite appropriately, John acknowledges that we will mess up occasionally. We will indeed fall short. By saying, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and our word, the word is not in us. Are these two verses contradictory? No. John's repeated assertion, that we follow the commandments, his reminder is not that we won't mess up. He acknowledges that we will. It appears to be that while we do not live without sin, it appears to shed life on the character of our life. It is a life not characterized by sin, It is a life characterized by obedience. God's commands are not only written on our hearts, but they are not burdensome to us either. He is giving us hope. He is reminding us. He is giving us encouragement that while we may be very hard on ourselves at times, he's reminding us who we are and who we come from. And who we've accepted. So we've acknowledged Jesus Christ. We've confessed our sins and we obey his commands. And then John spends probably 80% of his epistle telling us that we love one another. John uses the term love 39 times in this short letter to describe the love that we hold for each other. John is known as the apostle of love and he repeats it over and over again to give us even more encouragement. But John's not simply talking about this love as a a commandment. He's talking about it as indeed a characteristic. He looks at those around him and he looks at them with loving eyes and says, I know who you are because of the love you hold for each other. That is a love that is and comes from God. So we show one another love, because it is God's love, and God is love. You know, when I read First uh, John, and really all three of his epistles, I have this vision of the old man down at the barber shop. you know, they're shooting the breeze. But there's one man in particular who seems to be dominating the conversation and doing all the talking. You probably know the one I'm, I'm referring to. And he starts out most of what he says with a couple things. Back in my day... Or the trouble with the world today is, dot, 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 no insult intended because, in fact, my wife tells me I'm becoming this man (laughs) a little bit more every day. The trouble is, is that John just can't be ignored. You have this uneasy feeling as you listen to him that he speaks truth. It's just not always truth that you like to think about. You also know that if you tried to talk the way John does, you wouldn't get away with it. People would think you're maybe a little out of balance, a little nuts. But John speaks with such emotion and passion and conviction that he just simply cannot be ignored. Just when John's getting really worked up talking to the guys in the barbershop, his grandkids come by and run by the window, and they see him, and they wave, and they get all excited, and they come in to say hi to granddad. And his entire demeanor changes instantly. He goes from this man lecturing on the evils of the world, a big smile on his face, he grabs his grandkids, gives them a big hug, tells them how wonderful they are. He reaches into his pocket and gets some candy to hand them to him just before mom sneaks in behind him. He loves his grandkids. He wants them to know how special he thinks they are and how special they are. As the kids wander off to go find Mom, he turns his attention back on his buddies. And even with more energy, because he's been motivated by his beautiful grandkids, he's back at it cautioning them about the evils of the world and the messages that they should not listen to. Because now he's even more driven to protect those he loves. There's a third group that John alludes to in his words to us today. It's kind of subtle, and you kind of have to look for it. So let's look at verse 5 carefully one more time. It says, they are from the world. I'll pause for a moment and remind you. When he says, they are from the world, he's speaking again of the false teachers. But then he goes on. They are from the world, and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world, and the world listens to them. He's using world two different ways at this point. He's talking about the world that speaks the lies and the world that listens to the lies. So now we turn our attention, not necessarily to those that are out speaking, but the ones that are listening. They, too, have a different perspective, a different viewpoint where we have a biblical perspective of the world, they have a worldly perspective of the Bible. In Second Timothy, Paul puts it very succinctly. They hear what they want to hear. They, and I go on, do what they want to do, and they make the scriptures fit so they can do what they want to do. They do not know us because they do not know God. You know, other than this subtle distinction, John doesn't seem to differentiate much between those that speak the world's perspective and those that listen. But John's gift wasn't evangelism. His epistles clearly betray an attitude of you are either with us or you are against us. It might be easy to dismiss this as simply John's position in his life at this particular moment. John's up in age. He's circling the wagons with those he loves. He knows and he believes, because Jesus told him, that these false prophets would be there. And he believes that Jesus will come back in his lifetime. So, who can blame him? But you know what? This is not a recent phenomenon for John. Perhaps we should go back to maybe 30, 40 years earlier. From a story in the, in the book of Luke. It was just after Jesus was finishing up his ministry in Galilee, as they were traveling back to Jerusalem, they passed by a Samaritan village probably with the intent of staying for the night. But they're rejected. The Samaritans make them go on. They don't want them there. And James and John are indignant. They're mad, they're frustrated. And they go to Jesus, and they say, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and destroy them? No, John was not an evangelist. We may need to look outside John's epistles for some more guidance in this area. So what do we do with this information? John has given us some tests to know who these messages are coming from and what these messages are and what the message, who, who is behind these messages. So let's look again at the teachers of the worldview. Well, first of all, John asks us to recognize that the evil one is all around. And that these messages, we need to recognize them for who, what they are, who they're from, and from whom they belong and then he looks at you very directly in the eye, and he says, do not let them deceive you. Understand that they are no match for the one that lives in you. You don't need their teaching. Christ teaches you all you need to know. And he reminds these mature Christians that indeed their morals, their behaviors, do matter. They matter because they are a reflection of what Jesus has done to transform us. Perhaps John's strongest words about these false teachers is what it means for us, when we come across them. This is in his next epistle. It's actually you have to go into second John before he states this. But he says, do not welcome them. For anyone who welcomes them shares in their wicked work. Ah, oh, I hate that. I don't like it. And it's personal. Unfortunately, I have a family member who I would put in this category. As a youngster, he was the uncle that everyone looked up to. He was charismatic, fun, told great stories and jokes. He too grew up in the Christian church. But he was, as he went off to college, frustrated with the restrictions that the church taught. So he went off and found another path in in philosophy. He's a successful author, a successful professor, retired now, but he teaches lies. So when I'm told these words by John, it's hard, it's personal, it hurts. But we were told sometimes, were we not, that our faith would break family apart? Sometimes it is personal. John also tells us who we are. What do we do with that information? Just give it to God. Be encouraged. Be encouraged. Be assured, you are in God. You have a life that is characterized by love, not by sin. That's how you know who you are. He also repeats his speak of love for each other, not only as a characteristic, but indeed as a commandment love one another he says it over and over again, as if to remind us that we do love each other, and we should love each other. This is where I pause and I get to put in a little advertisement for lots of helping hands. Are you signed up? Are you part of lots of helping hands? Well, you should be. This is our church's effort to make sure you know when there's a need amongst you. I know I'm on there, and I get the email every, every two, Amy, two or three times a month, reminding me of a need. I keep waiting for that email that says, "A member of our church desperately needs an insurance underwriter to explain their policy." <laughs> that one hasn't come through yet. In the meantime, I'll shovel, I'll move bricks or firewood or whatever it can be that needs to be done when I'm available. This is the avenue we have. You love each other. That's a characteristic of you. You can do this. You just need to know what the needs are. And for those of you that have needs, know that this is the way to ask. Because it touches at least 80 people in this congregation who may be able to have that particular skill you need on that day. For John makes it clear that talk is cheap when it comes to love. He wants us to care for one another, take pity on others in need, pray for one another, particularly pray for one another when we see another one's sin. For they will be lifted up when we pray for them. And I told you earlier, we may need to look outside of John when it comes to this. Sometimes we do. Paul reminds us multiple times that we are also told in love to hold each other accountable. That's a tough one too. But do it in love. You know, there's a, uh, if you really want to hear, and again, it's dangerous, if you want to really hear the perspective of the world, listen to blues music. There's a 1923 blues song that highlights the difference between the world and you. The song is called, Nobody Knows You When You're Down and Out. Nobody knows you when you're down and out. In your pocket, not one penny. And as for friends, you don't have any. When you finally get back on your feet again, that's when everybody wants to be your long-lost friend. That's the world, folks. That's not you. Be the opposite of that. Be the opposite of almost any blues song. So the false teachers, those that have overcome, and now we have those that Jesus still has left to save. Let's go back to our story from Luke for a moment. You may recall that James and John had just got done asking Jesus if they should call fire down from heaven to destroy the Samaritans. And Jesus responds in two very interesting ways. I'll point out that in your pew Bible, you have to look at the footnotes to get this entire story. First of all, he rebukes them. I enjoy the Amplified Bible, if you're familiar with it. It tries to use, it tries to give you every possible translation. So it's long. But I still enjoy it. It elaborates on this, suggesting that Jesus rebuked and severely censured them. Wow, can you imagine standing there and having Jesus look you in the eye and rebuking you and severely censuring you? Ouch! Ouch! Does this possibly give us a little perspective on why John doesn't necessarily dig into this topic much some 30 or 40 years later? Maybe he just knows where he shouldn't speak. So we go outside, and I'm going to go to Jude for a moment, which is the next book in your your Bible. And Jude says very clearly hate their sin but love them I went outside even the Bible for some advice on this to Dallas Willard and I'm going to quote some from Dallas Willard because it says so clearly what he sees as our role in evangelizing towards those that Jesus still has left to save Mr. Willard says We must present our message as something that deals with the natural aspirations of the human heart. You ravage people with with the blessings of the kingdom. You make them hungry for it. That's why words are so important. We must be wordsmiths. To use words to ravish people with the beauty of the kingdom. It's the beauty of the kingdom that Jesus said was causing people to climb over each other just to get in. So understand, they will not understand you. They have a different perspective. So we must communicate in ways that they will understand. It would be a little bit like if we were to simply cite commandments and rules. Would that convince them? Have you ever had to try to have a political argument with somebody, and you use scripture as the reason they should believe the way you do? Unfortunately, it's not very effective, is it? They don't have that perspective. They don't go by your rulebook. It would be a little bit like going out into the park where some guys are playing basketball, and explaining to them that they're doing it all wrong. They're breaking all the rules when you're thinking about golf. We're not playing golf. We're not playing by those rules. As a matter of fact, you know what this is? No, because I haven't really shown it to you. This is a golf rule book. See how thick it is? Golf is a complicated game. Now, to be fair, this is actually called Decisions on the Rules of Golf. It has all the golf rules, and it also has commentary so this is, if you will, a golf study Bible. Okay. So here's an idea. You have maybe a young person who seems to be showing some interest in golf. So sit down with them and read this to them. That'll get them excited, won't it? Now, don't take me wrong. The Bible is beautiful. But the thing is, is alone, it may not be what that person needs. What they want, what they're passionate about, is living the life, having our perspective in life. So what do we do? Evangelism is not just inviting people here, although that's important, but inviting them to live your life. So when you have a mission project to do, invite them along. When you have a financial peace university here, which is starting today, invite them along. Invite them to live your life with Christ. Go after the passions of their heart. God is pursuing them aggressively. He has written His commandments on their heart. They just haven't recognized that yet. What they want to see is how to live that. And then, back to my golf analogy, what do we do with a youngster? We don't start reading the rules to them. We take them out on the golf course and teach them to love the game. And you know what happens when somebody really gets passionate about golf? Then they're interested in what's in here. Then they want to learn what's in here and how to play the game correctly and play by the rules. Same thing when someone starts living your life with you. Then they become interested. Then they will be much more inclined to dig into the Word. But John does give us some advice. And it's hard to hear, as I mentioned earlier. Don't be surprised if they hate you. This has been going on a long time, John says. And when did he say this? Over 1,900 years ago. It's been going on a long time. And it's still been going on a long time. So don't be shocked. It is the way it is. Do not love what they love, the goods and the ways of the world, the cravings, the appearance of importance and pride. These are things that only serve to squeeze out the Lord and recognize that their perspective is not ours. They will not understand. And we need to communicate with them in ways they do understand. So brothers and sisters, Be defensive. There are messages out there that are not good for us. Do not let them deceive you. Rather, love each other as yourselves and love your community as yourself. Let us pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for John, your servant. Thank you for his message of warning for keeping us from those things we should not be listening to. Thank you for his words of encouragement for giving us hope for ourselves hope for our brothers and sisters and hope for our community. And thank you for the direction you give us for understanding that they have a different perspective that we need to communicate with them in ways they grasp and welcome them into our lives and welcome them to the life that Jesus has in store for them. Amen.